Amen. Beautiful peace. If you are physically able, would you stand today for the reading? And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We began our series turning caring into sharing last Sunday with the Christian cause, that all the people of the earth might know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. And this morning we continue with Christian compassion. The notes are in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. And our text is here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Start our reading in verse number 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Christian compassion. First let's pray. Father, would you work now in our hearts and Lord, I know that there are scores of people in this room today who care about your cause. They truly do want what you want, and and I pray that you would help us to be able to take the concern that you've laid on our hearts for the people around us and turn it into action steps that would produce fruit that will remain. Guide us down this message, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I know 
to see there's a Praise the Lord, David. Thank you for that. Well, we've all heard uh, people express how much they care about certain issues or certain groups or certain diseases. And uh, there is a lot of verbal care going around these days. I don't know if you've noticed that. Everybody states concern for something. An expression of care is terrific. Don't get me wrong. It often leads to positive emotion. But expression without action attached to it is meaningless. It has no real value. And maybe when you were growing up, your dad would yell at the news every night. Uh, If you're young, maybe your dad still yells at the news. Fox News or whatever he watches. Or issues in the newspaper. Uh, I was outside in the backyard yesterday and my son Dawson, who's a faithful newspaper reader. He's the only faithful newspaper reader in our house most of the time. And he came out in the backyard and he said, Dad, what happened to the Supreme Court this week? Can you explain it to me? He said, what's DOMA? And he asked me about Prop 8. And uh, goodness gracious, big issues for a guy who's going to ninth grade to have to absorb. For him, for me to have to explain to him, Yeah, Dawson, the Supreme Court, they just said that marriage is no longer what it's been for 6,000 years. Um, And and so kind of they decided to change the definition. And and so we're facing these issues, and everybody has an opinion. And a lot of people express those opinions often. But expression doesn't make any difference without action. And I looked up the definition of an activist. Here's what I found. An especially active, vigorous advocate of a cause. Especially a political cause. And if you've seen the news lately, you don't really have to wonder which side has the most activists. And it's not even close. Conservatives are great at expressing passion on issues. But many times they're not great at acting on it. And a lot of times they're not great at acting on it because every action they do immediately gets questioned or gets destroyed or gets pushed away. And liberals, I have to tell you, they're often great at expressing compassion for certain groups of society. But it's normally just pandering for votes. And whichever side of the political spectrum you fall on, you can find expression without action. Have you ever been surprised?
that someone who was yelling the loudest about a particular issue was a complete hypocrite on that very issue? A congressman who is crying for family values that's cheating on his own wife. A senator who is crying for equal rights in health care, but then votes for a special congressional benefit plan. It's like the Coca-Cola employee whose refrigerator is full of Pepsi. And when expression and action aren't balanced out, the cause isn't moved forward. The truth is, sometimes it's moved backward. Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth. He was completely both of them at the same time. We're going to look at his example of true compassion today. But I'll warn you up front. Compassion can be messy because it's a collision point for grace and truth. And there aren't many policies you can write for acts of compassion. Sometimes, actually most of the time, compassion goes directly against human logic. And in the United States, we've gotten away from the model where neighbors cared for each other and churches cared for people in the community and we've got in the model where, you know what, let's just let government care for everybody. And so half of our nation are on the government payroll today. Our government spends $3 to give a dollar away. Compassion that's legislated does not work. It has to come from godly values and a godly heart. And as we look at the model of Jesus Christ, I hope that you'll buy into the fact that your compassion needs to grow legs. My compassion needs to grow arms. We have to get out and be the body of Christ in our community. So let's see first the response of compassion. The response of compassion. In Matthew 9, Jesus had already raised a, a ruler's daughter from the dead. He'd already healed a woman with an issue of blood. Already given sight to two blind men and cast a devil out of a mute man. Look again at verse number 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease. He had been busy. Jesus had been acting. He'd been teaching preaching, healing. And when he stopped to catch his breath, he was staggered at the sight of the multitude. In fact, he was moved with sympathetic concern for the hopelessness that he saw in them. The people had no direction. They were living empty lives. Anytime I travel through a major American or international airport or city, Sometimes I just take a minute to stand and look at a modern version of what Jesus saw. Multitudes moving. Hopeless multitudes moving. I don't know if you've ever stood in Times Square and just watched the throng move by. Or if you've ever been on a subway in New York City early in the morning when scores of workers are in each car headed for work with hopelessness in their eyes. 
Nothing to live for. And it's that way in every country in the world. Have you ever stood in downtown San Francisco and seen hopeless people walk by? And if you can't walk through the villages of a third world country and feel despair for the souls around you, you have no heart. I'm pretty sure that the group we have here today has a heart. You care deeply. You are moved by the fact that 56 million unborn children have been killed in the United States in the last 40 years. 56 million. Approximately 30 million of them could now be helping us pay down the national debt. If you just want to look at it from logistical purposes. You're moved by missionary presentations of worldwide despair. You're moved by the plight of your own family members and friends and by the scores of kids, even in our own community, that seem to be growing up without a direction. They seem to be growing up almost sometimes without parents. Many times they are growing up without parents. But if we showed a video on the screens about any of the scenarios I just mentioned, we would probably have to pass out Kleenex boxes. I am certain that the people of this body care. But that's only the beginning of true compassion. Caring is huge, but it's just the start. And so let's see next here in the message the requirement for compassion. The requirement for compassion. See, compassion really does start with a movement in the heart. But that's, that's just the level ground. That's just the beginning ground. Real compassion goes until action steps are taken. Look again at what Jesus communicated to his disciples and all of his future disciples in verse 37. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Laborers are needed to turn concern into action. See, he asked us and he asked them to pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would send laborers. And we do. We do pray for laborers. And our prayers are made because of concern about areas of our own pain, areas of our own giftedness, areas where we have a holy discontent. And God has placed that holy discontent in us to move us to a place of service or a place of ministry or even a place of prayer. I think of holy discontent kind of like a Popeye moment. You ever see Popeye? You guys remember Popeye? The early Popeye. Some of you were around when Popeye first grew up. Right? And uh, Popeye, you remember he had a girl, what was her name? Yeah, you guys know it. Olive oil. Yeah. And, uh, and there was always this antagonist. And what was the antagonist guy's name? Bruto, Bluto, Brutus. I'm hearing all kinds of names. But it starts with a B. Right? And, uh, and you always knew what was going to happen. The bad guy was somehow going to get to olive oil. Right? And olive oil was going to cry out 
And what was she going to say? Oh, Popeye. Right? She's going to say, you cry out. And Popeye was going to take the pipe out of his mouth. And what was he going to say? That's all I can takes, and I can takes no more. And he's going to pop a can of spinach and save the world. Right? Now, I'm sure that you've had a Popeye moment spiritually before where you said, that's all I can takes, and I can takes no more. Somebody's got to do something about this. Do you know, that's how so many charities, parachurch groups, mission organizations have been started. Because somebody had a Popeye moment and said, I'm not taking it anymore. And world vision gets started. I can't take it anymore. And Samaritan's Purse gets started. I can't take it anymore. And all of a sudden, we've got the Billy Graham Evangelical or Evangelist Association. I can't take it anymore. And, and there's a, a church that started in a community that's never had a gospel preaching church. These things come from a holy discontent in our lives where we say, somebody's got to do something. And, and sometimes we pray and we say, God, Please, would you send somebody to help bring boys and girls to church on the Sunday school bless? Bless. It's kind of a mixture of bless and bless. Um, God, would you please send somebody to work in the nursery loving on the babies? God, would you please send somebody to talk to my friends about Jesus? God, please send somebody to guide my teenager to the right life path. And I'm sure you've already guessed that the answer to your prayer might be you. Could just be you. God, would you please send somebody? And God's saying, yeah, it's you. Yeah, I, I am, I'm answering your prayer. Go ahead and go. It, this actually happened in the Bible. Look back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet, if you've ever read this chapter, he had a vision where he saw God in his holiness. And there are a lot of worship songs that are written based on this passage. But he said he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And you can read through those first parts of the passage. And when he saw God for who God really is, his response in verse 5 was, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. He said, God, I'm a nobody. I'm worth nothing without you. And that's exactly where God wants us to be, to be able to use us. And then one of the seraphims flew Verse number 7, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. God said, hey Isaiah, you are a pretty good candidate to be used by me. I'll touch your lips, I'll purify your heart, I'll make you a vessel of honor. Also, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. This is a Popeye moment where Isaiah said, I'm right here. I'll go. 
God, would you please send me? Now, we romanticize this passage sometimes as Christians. We say, oh, this is wonderful. Isaiah volunteered to go serve God. Well, God called Isaiah. And that's what this was all about. This whole passage, he saw God's holiness. He said, I'm nothing. God said, I can use you. Then he heard the voice of God and he said, yeah, okay, I'll go. The end of the chapter, can I just tell you, Christian service is not this romantic adventure where everything's going to be great and people are going to run down to you and say, what must I do to be saved? Now, look at the end of the chapter. Just keeping it real here for you. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes. So God told Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah, I called you to go. Here's the great news. Nobody's going to listen to you. Here's the great news. As you go out, they're going to make fun of you. As they go out, they're going to call you a legalist and a right-winger and a fundamentalist in every name they could possibly think of. How long is it going to be, God? Well, let's check that out too. Verse number 11. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, oh, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. How long is Isaiah going to minister this way in this environment for his whole ministry? As long as Isaiah teaches and spreads the gospel, people won't listen. And he's going to continue to have to say, God, I'm right here. Send me. Even on the days when he didn't want to be sent. See, it's kind of easy to make that first initial decision to say, God, I'm right here. Pick me. Yeah, I'll go. God, right here. But then the next day, you may not feel like going. The next day, you may not feel like going. And when somebody yells at you and somebody's mean to you and somebody you had compassion upon doesn't even say, thank you, you're going to say, God, I don't want to go anymore. It's no fun. I don't like your service anymore. I think I'll sit at home and watch golf and sleep. Because there's nothing like sleeping the golf. How many know this to be true? Yes, you can vouch for this. Just put the golf on. Doesn't matter what golf it is. You'll be asleep in 10 minutes. Right? It's like watching C-SPAN. If you want to go to sleep at night, watch C-SPAN. Just saying. But, but here was Isaiah. He said, look, God, I'll, I'll go. And because of your Christian concern... You should pray for laborers. Jesus asked you to do it. It's one of the only prayer requests that God ever made to you. But you should also be willing to be an answer to prayer. I promise you the harvest is as plenteous as it's ever been. People around us need Jesus in their lives. But compassion requires action. It requires laborers. About this time of the year... We have some raspberries growing out in our backyard. And according to my dear wife, it is a sin to allow raspberries to be wasted. 
And so we often send children out to pick the raspberries. Laborers in the harvest field. And if you ever stand at the window and watch one of our dear, dear children labor in the harvest field, he eats all the berries. Like, Dawson, we sent you out with a bowl to fill. You came in with eight raspberries. What have you been doing? Nothing. And he opens his mouth. And what does he have all through his teeth? Raspberry seeds. We don't want any raspberries to fall to the ground and the birds to steal them or the beetles to take them. And so you've got to pick all the berries. Now, the thing about the harvest field, the literal soul harvest field, is this. Many times we are unaware that the fruit's dropping. We have no idea that a soul may enter into eternity. And there are times where we grow callous to it. We say, ah, just to read the obituaries again, and this happened again, and there was an accident again. And you know, we even, we don't mean to, but maybe it's our 24-hour news cycle, we grow calloused to natural disasters. We grow callous to worldwide terrorism. Oh, another bomb went off in Israel. Oh, another bomb went off in Syria. Earthquake here. Tornado there. And sometimes we attach our heart to that for a moment. We say, goodness gracious, how many of you um, were watching the news at all when that F, EF5 tornado hit um, Moore, Oklahoma again? Yeah, we kind of watched the news on that. And we went to bed that night and they were saying 40-something people had died and these children in the elementary school had died in the basement of the school. And man, we were upset by it. But I wonder sometimes if it's easier for us to be concerned about the children in another place and the adults in another situation than it is for the people of our own city and the harvest field right around us. Your neighbor, your coworker, your mom, your dad, your grandkid. We need laborers. It is a requirement of compassion. But then I, I want to talk about the roadblock to compassion. The roadblock to compassion. Well, what is it that's holding you back? What's holding me back from completing compassion in life. I know you care. I know you have concern. But what's stopping you from stepping into action on that? In our pursuit to be like Jesus, we all face compassion busters. They can be a lot of things. One thing, they could be products of our background. It is a simple but overlooked fact, but compassion breeds compassion. And if your mom was extremely compassionate, chances are you lean that way too. If your mom was the mom where you fell down on your bike and she rushed out to help you and say, let's get some medicine on that. We're going to fix you right up. Right? You may lean toward that. If your mom said, get up, you're fine. How many of you had a mom? God bless you. Yes. You'll be fine. 
It looks like your leg may be broken, but we'll wait a few days to see. I know you have bones sticking out of your skin, but it might be better. Right? Here's an ace bandage. Wrap it yourself. Right? Like your mom's Clint Eastwood or something, right? It's throwing it at you. But, but compassion breeds compassion. And, and maybe your home was very compassionate. Or maybe um, if, if your dad was a merciful person, you likely don't have as much trouble being merciful. Merciful environments produce merciful attitudes. And every home has its own DNA. If, if you grew up in a home that has made you want to love people around you in life, you should bow your head right now and pray a fervent prayer of thanksgiving to God. Because you're a blessed individual. See, there are others around you that would say, I never once felt mercy or love from either one of my parents. I didn't have any relatives or important people in my life who treasured me. Some of you would say, I've never even had a friend who I knew loved me deeply. And so you might be starting with what we might call a compassion deficit. You're not starting at the same place as other people. I have to tell you, sometimes my own lack of compassion really ticks me off. I mean, in my prayer journal, I have to come to God again and again and again and say, God, why do I not care about people the way I should? You know, a lot of it is from environment. Even in our house with our kids growing up now, we love our kids. They're such treasures. But sometimes you know how we love them? We jab them a little bit. Right? Got to make fun of them a little bit. Keep those kids humble. And sometimes we talk and we say, you know what? Maybe we're not being really compassionate to our kids. My goodness, we just told our son he has no hope for the future. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not as compassionate as it should be. And we said it teasingly, right? But the environment that you're bringing your kids up in right now is the environment they will labor in initially in the harvest field. They're going to go out to love people in the community the way you've loved them. Please don't have the baby right now, please. <laughs> She's getting close. She's breathing over there. Like, no, not in church. <laughs> uh, pray for those kids. Love them. But can I tell you, we sometimes start with that compassion deficit. And no wonder you have difficulty knowing how to manifest compassion toward others. Can I tell you, friend, that God really is able and willing to help you make the move to compassion, no matter your background? Maybe it's your work environment. You're around cynical, cutthroat people all day, every day. And you can't figure out how to survive at work without leaving your heart at the door. I don't know, it's easy to think, Pastor, if I could only work in a godly environment, I'd be so full of compassion. You have no idea how wrong you are. I work in a godly environment. You know, sometimes the only people, people who work at the church ever talk to are the people at the church. We have no ability sometimes to reach out beyond these walls, and it's sickening. 
because we should be reaching out just like everybody else. Now, did you ever consider that God has allowed you to be in a dark place so that you can be a light? Light shines brightest in darkness. And if you're around darkness, you have a plenteous harvest right there. It worries me when Christians don't ever connect with any non-Christians. It's impossible to be part of the harvest if you're nowhere near a field. You know, the speed at which we live our lives in 2013 is incredible. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side? I've thought about this time and time again, and they were probably, I have to say, they were probably kind and compassionate people at heart. But they couldn't stop to help someone in need. They had too many religious duties that day. Speed of life. The average work week for those in any type of management is now 52 to 59 hours per week. The Harris Poll says that leisure time has gone down 37% in the last 15 years. Add to that the two-career family and the pressure associated with that. Or the single-parent household and the pressures associated with that. Many people in our society today are living in crisis mode. And when you're in crisis mode, you spend every spare minute trying to figure out how to keep all the balls in the air as you juggle duties. Try to keep all the plates spinning as once as you sort through all your roles in life. It makes sense that people living in crisis mode are generally not big distributors of compassion. They're just trying to survive their own weekly drill. I can almost imagine the priest or the Levite walking by and saying to the almost dead man on the ground, you think you have problems. I have six more meetings before sundown. And sometimes we miss the whole point. If you're going to be compassionate, you'll have to allow God to teach you to bring down the pace of life so you can act on your concerns. But there's another roadblock to compassion that I'll mention. It's possible that you're experiencing it in your life. You might have at some point overdosed in expressing compassion. It's actually possible. I know some folks who have gotten so fired up about compassion that they sort of just unzip their chests and offer their hearts to every needy person who came their way. They were so overwhelmed by God's grace that they wanted to be conduits of His love to every single troubled person they could find. And so they gave and gave. In fact, they gave so much they were ready to give out. And one day they found themselves feeling a tinge of resentment towards someone they were caring for. But they ignored the warning signal and kept giving until the roof caved in. At a certain point, these people said, this is crazy. I'm caring for everyone else, but who's caring for me? I give and give, but nobody gives back. And some dear, sweet folks give up on giving. 
sometimes for many years, sometimes for the rest of their lives. My dear caregiver friends and servants of God, remember that caring for others has to be balanced with caring for yourself. Jesus demonstrated this. He gave out enormous amounts of care. But then on a regular basis, he knew that he had to get to a mountain to pray, to be alone, to rest and recuperate. We've all received God's grace. Every one of us has. Some of us tend to forget just what that means. We become accustomed to grace. We sometimes take God's kindness for granted. And we get used to receiving compassion, absorbing it and failing to pass it on to others. And that's why I want to end this morning with the result of compassion. Go with me to the tiny little book of Jude. And I'm sure that most of you already know the thought that we're headed toward here. Tiny little book of Jude, it's right before Revelation. I want you to look at verse number 21. There's a key word in verse 21 that sometimes we don't think of or look at in this passage. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We're supposed to be looking for mercy. Verse 22 is a result of that, and of some have compassion, making a difference. See, real compassion always leads to a difference being made. But you can't always tell in the moment. The size of the difference is not often seen in the immediate. Last night, my wife said we needed to go to Walmart to grab a few things. And of course, that's my favorite thing to do on a Saturday night. Chopping at the bit. I mean, every Saturday night, wish we could mark that down. And so I said, well, which Walmart's closer to our house? I've asked that question, you know, the last 50 times too. And so she actually did, she asked Siri on the iPhone, which Walmart is closer to our house? And Siri said, there are six locations near you, blah, 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 blah. It turns out that the one I always thought was closer, further away. I've been wasting gas for seven years. Driving to the wrong Walmart. And so we went to the Walmart over on 12th Avenue in Nampa because it's 0.7 miles closer to our house. And and we got there and walked through the store. And the stuff we were supposed to get in the refrigerated section. Anybody go to Walmart last night in Nampa? You you went there? Do they have the plastic? Yeah. All their refrigerated stuff, you couldn't buy it. Their refrigeration unit was on the blink. And so every refrigerated section in the whole store had plastic cover in it. And we're walking around, we're in zombie land. You can't even buy milk. Good luck getting cheese. Good luck getting the bratwurst. You're sunk. Now the freezer section was just fine, so we were able to get ice cream. (laughs) Yeah, I heard an amen on God bless you. But the refrigerated section, nothing. I think, why, why are we here? 
Come to Walmart on a Saturday night. Come to this Walmart on a Saturday night. And we got up to the checkout line. And there were like three carts in front of us. And they didn't have much stuff. And I'm like, man, it was taking forever. And my wife said, a lot of the employees are probably helping with your refrigeration. And it's okay, right? Common. Everything that she's chatting up everybody in the line. She actually has a heart of compassion for people. Like, she cares about them generally in a literal way. And I'm thinking, could you please, why don't you go to that line so I can get through? Right? You only have eight things. Go to the self-checkout for crying out loud. That's why they did it at this Walmart. (laughs) I'm talking about a true heart of compassion today, folks. And all of a sudden, a girl walked by with a, with a little girl. lady walked by. And she looked at us, and we looked at her. It's a girl that grew up in our church in Boise who trusted Christ probably when she was 8 or 9 years old. She's now 25, 26 years old with her daughter, who's 7. And she started telling us about her life and her kids and her husband and all of her extended family. And here's, here's the conversation we had. It's unbelievable that those people are doing okay. And we really said that. Because the last time we saw them, they weren't doing okay. And sometimes you think, boy, we, we weren't able to make a difference. Uh, we, we totally bombed out on that one. Maybe you've been there. Like, I tried to help this person. I tried to love this family. I tried to befriend this neighbor. And it went nowhere. And all of a sudden, a person walks into your life that you haven't seen for 12 or 13 years, and they're doing okay. And God's still working. And things are moving ahead. And it reminded me of this verse because... We sometimes think that there's this magic difference button that has to be seen for us to have really had compassion. Like, if we have compassion, it has to make a difference. And out comes this figure out of the bottom of the machine. Wow, God, you worked a miracle. You know, sometimes compassion is when you took the guy to Walmart to buy him gas and he pushed the premium button. And he didn't say thank you. And five years later, he walks into church and says, you know, you bought me gas one day. I came to hear from God. Like, you, what? And literally, a guy walked in one day, and he said, I came to pay you the $100. And I said, sir, you're going to have to help me. I do not know you. I've never met you before. He said, you know, like three or four years ago, you bought me gas three times. What? Yeah, I came to pay the hundred dollars. I said, "Well, give it to God. You know, it's okay." He sat and listened in church that day. Compassion sometimes it makes a difference, but you don't even get to see it. You know, there are people you're praying for now who may not trust Christ until after you're gone into eternity. There are people you're trying to love and befriend, and you have no idea where it's going to go. Compassion makes a difference. I mentioned a minute ago that 
God doesn't want us to receive mercy and absorb it and fail to pass it on. We're not supposed to be ponds of mercy. We're supposed to be streams of mercy. We're supposed to keep the mercy moving. That's what Jude verse 21 is about. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. God never calls us to bottle up mercy, but simply to receive mercy and then pass it on to those around us. Let's close this morning over in Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Probably know this story. Verse number 23. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in our current monetary system, that would be over $10 million. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him. By the way, that's what worship is, falling down before God, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. He's trying to say, look, I know I owe you $100 million. I know I owe you $50 million, and I know I worked out at Walmart, but I'm good for the money. I'll get there. That's what we do with God sometimes. We say, God, I'm going to pay off that eternal life thing. That cross thing you did for me, Great, and I'm going to do everything I can to pay it back to you. And then maybe you could help me out at the very end of that thing. The debt can't be paid. The sin debt can't be paid by you. It can't be paid by me. And so here the the Lord of that servant, look what it says, verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with Compassion. So he was moved with compassion. Now there's an action that takes place because of this. And loosed him and forgave him the debt. That's awesome. Wonderful. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, about eight bucks. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. I get paid on Friday. I'll pay you the eight bucks, dude. It's okay. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay his debt. Could I tell you that that might be where a lot of us are today. We have received salvation by Jesus Christ into eternal life. We have received the greatest act of mercy that history has ever known, and yet we've kept the mercy inside of us and never put it out to anyone else. It's easy to demand a debt from a friend or a parent or a son or a daughter. What's even more incredible is that in our hearts, we demand 
we demand debts from the person who isn't paying attention at the stop sign. Right? We demand a debt from them. Say, what does that mean? It means we're not merciful to them. See, if we're not merciful, we're demanding a debt. Right? Saying, go already. What's your problem? Get off your phone. Why are you texting right now? I'm trying to get home. Say, Pastor, how do you know all this lingo? Back to the message. You know, sometimes we demand a debt from the lady at the checkout stand at Walmart who isn't fast enough for our liking. How hard is it to run up a squash, lady? How hard is it to to get the stuff through so we can get where we need to get? And the speed of life sometimes takes the mercy that God has given us and keeps it all in the vessel instead of letting it out. The way that we give and receive mercy in our environment, on our background. Sometimes we're at a restaurant and the couple who can't seem to corral their kids becomes this big irritation to us. And we demand something from them. Not out loud, but in our heart we refuse mercy. Instead of walking across and saying, you know what? I remember those days. I remember those days. What's your name? So good to meet you. See, God has a different plan for us. Now, you say, Pastor, you would really do what you just said? It would be hard for me to do it, but my wife would do it. She would. She would say, I remember those days. Our boys were, oh my goodness. Right? And, it, and the thing is, if we would just offer mercy, did you know that nobody else is offering mercy except Christ followers? There is no mercy in the cults. There's none. It's all based on good works. There is no mercy in legalism. There is no mercy in Hinduism. There's no mercy anywhere but in Jesus Christ. And we're the only vessels who have it. And sometimes we lock it up and demand our eight bucks. And Christian compassion is still as alive as it's ever been. But what if we took a new look at it? What if we said, how should compassion look in my life? How should it look for me? Well, I give to the church and I give to the missionaries and that's all I really need to do. You know, what if God actually wanted you to give mercy personally? What if he actually meant that salt and light thing in the scriptures for you? This whole series is about turning caring into sharing. Here's how I'd like to close today. Just a moment. We're going to close in prayer. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to sit right there at your seat and ask God one question. Just one. You don't have to move. You don't have to come to the front. You don't have to raise your hand. I want you to ask God one question. What should compassion look like in my life? And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the Holy Spirit of God lays on your heart that neighbor you've been meaning to talk to. 
or that waiter at the restaurant, or that waitress you demeaned, or that person at work that you can't get along with, or that person in the community that you've been so judgmental against. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if God did that. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Well, I asked this question, and it didn't come out very well for me. There is a whole list of people that I needed to show mercy to, and I totally missed it. And without mercy, you can't have compassion. And without compassion, you can't make a difference. Let's bow in prayer. Would you say to God right now, God, what's compassion supposed to look in my life? What's it supposed to look like in my life? It's not about my role in the church. It's not about my place in the community. It's not about me as a dad or a mom. What does compassion look like in my life? What's it supposed to look like? Holy Spirit of God, teach us right now what it looks like. Holy God, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. God, in our flesh, we mess it up so much. We withhold your mercy from people who need it most. We're religious, but we walk by the people who are dying for eternity because of our busyness, our environment, our background, or some other excuse. And would you today prepare our hearts to be people of compassion. To look for people around us who need your mercy instead of withholding it. Help us to offer it. Help us to love like you loved. And to be your hands and feet in this community. Thank you so much. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.